0: Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. So, yeah, thanks, Mark, for preaching last week. Uh, I was out, went to Disneyland with uh, some friends, the Lace and uh had a great, great time, and I'm still recovering. Honestly, I am so old, uh, but it was so good. Um, so it was nice to be away for a week and um, be back and serve church uh, over the last several days and then jumping into today. So as as Jeremy read for us, we're covering Mark chapter 10, verse 35 to 45. Um, and just a little recap, just historical context. It's the earliest written gospel, roughly mid roughly 80s A.D., uh, he is writing to a small persecuted church in the city of Rome. In the first half of his gospel, he establishes that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus heals people with leprosy, teaches with authority, um, Casts out demons, walks on the water, feeds 5,000 families, and so on. Like Jesus is clearly demonstrating that he is God. He is God-less. That's the first half of the gospel. The second half of the gospel happens at the end of chapter chap- where Peter confesses, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then the gospel begins, begins to take a dark and challenging tone. That is, Jesus begins to set his face toward Jerusalem. He's going to suffer and die and rise from the dead. And he begins to give these very heavy, serious, stern calls to what it looks like to be a faithful disciple and, and follower of Jesus. So those are the two halves of Mark's gospel. We begin in verse 35. It says this, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him up to him, and said, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Okay. So James and John, they approach Jesus. He's been revealed to be the Messiah. And they, sh- they show that they have this kind of a half-baked idea of what the Messiah would, uh, would do. That is, no Jewish person was walking around in the first century thinking, all right, the Messiah is going to be a person that gets apprehended by our own, own religious authorities, handed over to the Roman government, be publicly stripped naked, shamed, shamed before the crowds, then be buried and resurrect from the grave and offer salvation, not just to the nation of Israel, but to the whole world. Knowing that, they were thinking a political ruler. The Messiah would come into Jerusalem, overthrow Rome, and establish the King kingdom of God. That was essentially it. So this Messiah theme was in play, but they were playing with kind of some, the only cards that they knew, so to speak. And they approach Jesus and they don't they, they, like the way, the way my kids approach me for things. Like my kids will walk right up to me and go, Dad, here's what you got to do. You have to say yes. Okay, okay. We're just going to establish you're going to say yes to, what, to whatever. And then they ask. Um, James and John are literally doing that. Jesus, we want you to do, to do for whatever we ask of you. And just pro tip for. Those who, those who maybe would like to one day become parents, um, when the child asks and says, we want you to say yes, don't do that, don't do that, because they never say, dad, here's what we want to do for you. We want to help you with yard work. We want to help do laundry. We want to do the dishes. We want to make life easier on you. The kid never does Never does that. It's like, here's what we want, want, and then it's followed with inconveniencing the remainder of your day. Okay. So Jesus asks them them first. Well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left when you come into your glory. Okay. So they asked to be seated at Jesus' right and left hand, hand the highest position of honor, honor, all of creation. They're thinking, well, Jesus is going to be king soon. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to need an advisory council. We'd like those people on the board. And since we are part of the inner three, it is Peter, James, and John, at least two of them thinking like, I'm as good a candidate as anybody in the world. We're probably the likely ones. And it's... Pretentious and as silly as that kind of sounds to us 2,000 years removed in a Western context, in an Eastern context, it would have made a lot of sense. In Rome, Rome was an honor-shame culture, much like two-thirds of the world is to this day. And so in an honor-shame culture, pursuing honor is just what you do. Here's what Cicero, the, the famous philosopher, order, rhetoric, the Skeptic, here's what he said about the nature of honor in 56 AD. By nature, we yearn and hunger for honor. And we have glimpsed, as it were, some part of its radiance. There is nothing we're not prepared to bear and suffer in order to secure it. This was just how Roman, Roman people thought. We'll do anything for honor. Joseph Hellen, Joseph Hel- here's how he describes the first century approach to to honor. He says this honor, money, and certainly not love, was the most prized social commodity in the Roman world during the New Testament era. Beyond the basic necessities of life, persons in antiquity did everything possible to defend and augment their honor in the public sphere. Conversely, they did everything in their power to avoid shame of public disorder. So while it's clear that the disciples don't know what they're asking for entirely, it's also also clear why they would be pushing for this position of honor. Jesus responds, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? So he follows with questions about the cup and baptism. And he's not talking about taking church sacraments. Jesus is talking about wrath, judgment, and suffering. So throughout the Old Testament, in Jeremiah, the Psalms, Zechariah, Habakkuk, and even over in the New Testament and in Revelation, the cup, Always, 100% of the represents the wrath of God. 100% of the time. Psalm 75, verse 8. I'm only going to read you three. Perhaps you've read your old time. No, I bet there's more than that. There are, like north of 600 references. But here's two from the Old Testament. 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the, hand of the Lord, the cup foaming, with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The cup, Habakkuk 2, 16, 2, 16 the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you, utter shame will come upon your glory. Revelation 14, verse 10. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Remember, later in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays what? Let this cup pass from me. So I read these passages passages to you today uh, as, uh, as a... Warning and a call to repent, place your faith in Jesus. And I read these words today because they are the, they are the very word. Of God. And I'm telling you the truth about God's wrath, because our society, and even within our own selves, for those of us as professing Christians, if we're really honest, struggle with the idea of the wrath of God. We do. And oftentimes we will scoff at it and turn our nose up at it and go, certainly he must be talking about somebody else, or how primitive to think that our all holy creator, holy creator, would be accountable for our actions and our inactions. And so it would be preposterous or cowardly or hateful as your pastor would be to preach something other than what Jesus actually said himself. And so, for anyone who does not know Jesus, the scripture says that at the end of your life you do not give an account to a mirror. Don't look back at yourself. You're your maker. And for all of the love and justice and grace that we, we constantly celebrate, uh, we do so in light, of, in light of the fact that God is also holy, just, and the judge. And that because, hmm, because God, is, God is so good, he did not compromise his holiness in loving our world. The scripture repeatedly declares that God is holy and that God is love. If we struggle with those two ideas being in tension, go read the most famous passage, famous passage in the Bible. In John chapter 3, you read the words, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and whoever would believe in him would not perish, eternal life. In John chapter 3, verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains." Same passage. So Jesus is talking about the wrath. Are you able to drink this cup? cup? Are you able to be, be able to be baptized? This language of baptism is a metaphor that you find all throughout the Old Testament as well. Most famously, it shows up in the Psalms. Like Psalm Psalm it reads, Deep calls to deep, that the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and waves have gone over me. The idea is being submerged in a state of suffering. Jesus' resurrection, of course, Christians started to be baptized, not as a state of suffering, and drink the cup, not in that light, but because of the resurrection, now, this submerging in, the, in this drink cup represents eternal life, which is amazing. <laughs> they answer Jesus, well, sure, sure, we're able to drink the cup and be baptized, Sure. The idea is they, they, they are aware that the cup is suffering and the, the submerging is suffering. They they know that's there. But but they're thinking again, sure, sure, we we're gonna go in here and overthrow the Romans. We're prepared to die for you in this militaristic endeavor. We're we're ready, ready, we can do, this. we're we're willing. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. So he assures them, he assures them, yeah, you will drink this cup. You will be baptized. But suffering is inevitable as they follow him. And then he adds this caveat. This morning I got up praying for this whole day. Um, prayed, and I don't usually do this. I'm going to start doing this. Um, God, help me see things this morning that I haven't seen, that I studied all all week. And he helped me see something. He says this, But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but for those for whom it's been prepared. What a strange thing. Like if you're standing there talking with Jesus and he goes, Look, I don't, I don't get to do who gets to sit where in glory. Wouldn't you want to stop and go, Why? Why don't you get to pick who sits where? You're Jesus. You are the one born through, and through the virgin to utter poverty. You are the one smuggled out of Israel into Egypt as a, chi- as a child. You are the one who lived a sinless life. You're the one who's putting up with these pedantic disciples. You're the one who's dealing with the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the elders, the crowds, the demons, all your opponents. You're the one who cured the person with leprosy. You're the one who raised the dead. You're the one on the way to Calvary. And you don't get to determine who sits where. I feel like you're awfully qualified, Jesus. Hmm. Why? Why is it reserved for the Father to determine who sits where and where? Alan Cole, theolo- theologian Sydney passed away 20 years ago this year. This is what he had to say about this passage. This is a reminder that even the son, Jesus, is in living submission to his father. It's not left to Jesus, Jesus, only to the father to dispense such honors at will. So too, the time of the last hour is hidden from Jesus deep in the mind of God. You remember when Jesus says, when they ask, when when are you, he says, I don't know. That's my father will tell me when to go. And yet, this is not theological subordinationism. It's voluntary acceptance of this position by the by the son. Humility and submission are not popular Christian virtues, but they are basic, for they are founded in the servant example of Jesus himself. Here's what Cole, what Cole is trying One of the ways in which Jesus creates Jesus ultimate humility before God and faith in his Father and trust in knowing that God will always do the right thing, thing every time, down to determining determining who's there, is by obeying without knowing every nuance of how things will turn out. And at the same time, completely convinced that the battle does belong to the Lord. And God will work everything for the good of those who have been called according to his purpose, to his glory. This is how Jesus Jesus demonstrates humility. Saying, I don't, I don't know, but I know my father is going to make the right decision. Even there, Jesus is demonstrating, though qualified, certainly. He demonstrates humility before the father. And so when Jesus is seated in glory... He's not going to look to his right and left and suddenly go, "Oh, how did you get here?" The other way around, whoever is seated exactly to his right and his left are probably going to look at Jesus and say, "Oh, how did I get here? How did I get get here?" And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. <laughs> So the disciples, they've become aware of the scheming of James and John. They're jockeying for this position in glory, and they're indignant. They're frustrated over this because James and John beat them to the punch. Oh, shoot, I should have applied for this before these jer- jerks. So they're indignant. They're frustrated. And this is what you see over and over again, especially in our cr- church context, is that self righteousness and seeking one's own glory always provokes others to anger? It just does. I'll be open, open about my own failings in this area because um, this is what I get to do. <laughs> um, when I became a Christian, uh, God radically changed my life. I was right at 16 years of age, and. For all the good that God was doing in my life, uh, I also became very proud, very, 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 very smug, cold, in a way. And some of it had to do with my environment that I grew up in, for sure. Mentors and other things like that, and the system that I was around. Part of that, that to blame. But not all of them. Um, what was actually mostly more broken it was not just the, the poor, self-righteous mentors around. It was my own misunderstanding of who God is. You see, when I converted, I first understood God to be kind of a divine CEO in the sky. Has his factory down here, and we're the factory workers. And he doesn't really come down out of his corner office and talk to too many, except for a few of his favorites who are really have earned earned with him and so the rest of us our job we drew the short straw is like just stay really busy and make sure you're doing better than the guy next to you on the assembly line otherwise you could get fired i.e lose your salvation i.e i was in an arminian arminian ah! and so i was so frustrated with this i gotta keep up and i gotta perform and i started to pray things like this god god for your glory use me I think the last person you walked up and just said, I feel like being used today. Prayed things like use me for your glory, which was religious code for please make me look good in front of a religious audience. That's what I actually meant. And it wasn't until years later that I began to believe that God is not hiring, hiring these, but he is adopting children into his family. And so you can exchange the prayer, "God use me for your glory for something like, "God help me and help me know that I love it," and help me live out of, the, out of the center of that reality." And in so doing, I might become a little more useful <laughs> by proxy in this world. But the aim is not to, not to just used, it is to live out of the center of being the beloved. The disciples didn't know this part yet, and so they're all frustrated. Can any of you relate to that, by the way? Yeah? Okay. Oh. If we don't live out of the center of being the beloved of the Father, we'll be reduced to jockeying for positions and titles, reducing our brothers and sisters' petition, and creating an indignant, frustrated community. And Jesus called them to him, so now they get a private teaching, <laughs> and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them so he's going to compare how the gentile world does authority and the way he does authority and their worlds apart We're, we're kingdom rather worldly leadership enjoys power authority and coercion through unteachable unwilling to listen change repent and grow ironically the disciples rulers of the gentiles Uh, uh, who would have despised the rulers of the Gentiles were literally acting just like them. They're arguing about power and glory and who gets to sit where and who still says what. Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would become great among you must be be your servant. The Greek is actually really technical here and I'm not going to belabor, belabor, just... Jesus doesn't say literally, but it shall not be so among you. It literally, it is not so among you. It is not. Here's what he's trying to say. The kingdom of God is not just a future reality that we're anticipating and it's a present reality that we get to participate in now. And here's how it actually is right now. It is not, it is not. And And he's putting the heels going, oh, I, I don't think that way, Jesus. Jesus is like, well, you can join the team then. But this is how the kingdom of God works now. It is, is not so among you. It is not this way among my followers. The leaders stoop to the bottom. The leaders will go last. The leaders will serve. It is this way. And only this way. That's what he's, what he's getting at. So, we can simply soberly ask ourselves, are my hands and feet moving, serving, or do they not? How are you? Whoever will be first among you must be slave. In the ancient world, serving was despised. Was despi- um, in fact, it was seen as the opposite of happiness. Plato uh, wrote in his famous writing, the, the *Gorgias*. He says this: "How can one be happy? Be happy, serve someone." I just love that he just said it out loud. <laughs> How can you be happy? Like he said the thing that you shouldn't ask in church. He just said it. How can you be happy? Happy having to somebody. Was it Bob Dylan? Didn't he say, you got to serve somebody? I'm going to have that song in my head now. All right. Um, how someone be happy when he has to serve someone? Jesus' upside-down way of doing everything, especially his own kingdom work, happiness and holiness are not competing with one another. They actually go hand in hand. And so this is the great call of discipleship is, Called to a lifestyle of self. We are not called to a lifestyle of self-expression, self-glorification, self-actualization. We are called to a lifestyle of self-denial. And as long as we have a diminished view of our creator, self-actualization makes all the sense in the world. But if we saw the Father the way Jesus sees the Father, self-denial makes plenty of sense. St. Francis taught us to pray, it is in the loving that we find love of, in the that we receive, it's in the dying that we are found. Almost almost done. Why are we reluctant to serve? Part of it has to do with what Colton said earlier. I think a lot of it has to do with, with fear. We're afraid that if we humble ourselves, our serving will go unthanked. And unrecognized. And it might. We're also afraid that if we humble ourselves, that other people will take advantage of us. And they might. We're afraid that if we pour ourselves out to love and care for someone else, maybe our needs will go a little unmet. And it might. We don't serve because we are afraid afraid that it might not be worth the exchange. Chrysostom, the early church father, said this. This is a beautiful passage saying of Jesus, He's the curse, He triumphed over death. He opened paradise. He, he struck down sin. He opened wide the vaults of the sky, and he lifted our first fruits to heaven. Heaven. He filled the world with godliness. He drove out error. He led back the truth. He made our first fruits mount to the royal throne. He accomplished so many good deeds that neither I or all humanity together could set them before your, mind, your minds. Before he humbled himself, only the angels knew him. After he humbled himself, all human nature knew him. You see how humbling of himself did not make him have less, but produced countless benefits, countless deeds of virtue, and made his glory shine forth with greater brightness. God wants for nothing and has need of nothing. Yet yet with himself he produced such great good, increased his household, and extended his kingdom. Why then are you afraid that That you will become less. Humble yourself. Why are you afraid. That you'll somehow become less. If you humble yourself. Later Jader James. One of those that were jockeying for position. Would write to the church in Jerusalem. God resists the proud. But gives Grace. So I'll ask a question today. What does, God, what does God call you to do in regards to humbling yourself, yourself, picking up a posture of a servant? Where's he leading you? You know. <laughs> I know. I don't know for you. I know for, I know for me. For. Maybe it has to do with how you spend your time or money or use of language. Who needs you to serve them right now? Could you humble yourself to serve that person? Okay, so up to this point, you have thought of do this. You know you got to hear the gospel. Like I've told you, here's a great example. Follow Jesus and humble yourself and serve people. Like, yeah, yeah, okay, all right. Where do, you, where do you get the strength to do it? Well, you got to remember that the gospel is not Jesus is a good example. The gospel is Jesus is our substitute. And it comes in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, serve, and to give life as a ransom for many. Jesus understood that his own self sacrifice, laying down his life in the place of others, as a ransom, as a payment that many would go free. And if you belong to Jesus, you are one of those those many. And Jesus set more than Peter and James and John free. He went to his cross to take away our sins. Our sins of the past that no one knows about, the present struggle struggle to familiar. Jesus did this as as he understood his cross as the ultimate act of service. Who did Jesus' ransom go to? He certainly didn't have to buy us back from the devil. He was never in charge. He corrupted creation. The ransom that Jesus paid, he died in order to avert the wrath of God. For every one of us, one of us who would call out for salvation. And the right and the left hand that James and John were asking about is revealed in the most unlikely of places. Mark chapter 15, verse 27, we read, And they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. The early church, in the first three centuries, consistently in worship would recognize recognize that when the crucifix would be brought into worship, the Christians would remember and say out loud, our king reigns. There he is on his his throne. Hmm. The son of God died between thieves and he stooped lower than any human being would ever, ever stoop in order to make a way for the many, including you, who had fallen so far. Jesus is the greatest in his kingdom, and you're invited in. Amen, amen.